Anthony Bourdain said his role was if you show up late to the first shift, you got to go. The second time, you're done. You don't come back. Because it shows disrespect of your colleagues and it shows you don't respect yourself. Guys, I'm on time almost always. I was up late last night. I was tired. I was up early this morning. And what I did is I talked into my phone and I said, set alarm mm. for 3.45. Mm-hmm. And the alarm didn't go off. Mm. The mm-hmm. dog ate my homework. I'm going to get a zin going and everything is going to be fun. Mm-hmm. The last hour of my life has been spent preparing for this thing. While like Frodo Baggins was taking a little nap in the Shire. <laughs> Welcome to People vs. Algorithms, a show about patterns in media, technology, and culture. I'm Brian Morrissey, and each week I am joined by Troy Young and Alex Schleifer. Appreciate the feedback on last week's episode with Dot Dash Meredith CEO Neil Vogel. We're going to keep mixing in guests. Always good to keep it fresh. We would love your feedback. You can send it to me at bmorrissey at therebooting.com. You can also leave a comment and a rating and review on Apple or Spotify or other podcasting platforms. This week, we are continuing these conversations by having one with Lauren Sherman, the fashion correspondent at Puck. We talk about the state of the fashion industry and how Lauren approaches her coverage of it. We also talk about survival. This has been on my mind lately amid all the layoffs and and contractions in the media business. After all, these are structural changes that are happening and they are not over. The media business that emerges will most assuredly be smaller, more tightly focused, and in the long run, hopefully more sustainably built. On that note, we discuss at the top what, if any, lessons can be learned from Vice's seemingly endless travails. Troy engages in a bit of nostalgia there, I have to warn you. Earlier today, I actually visited Columbia's J School to talk to a group of students who are about to enter the profession at possibly the worst time. Talking about pie-in-the-sky scenarios or engaging in toxic positivity. Besides, if they have the journalist DNA, they wouldn't buy that stuff anyway. So instead, I tried to strike a realistic chord. And I believe the survivors in this profession tend to be those who developed a specialization and rejected the idea of being a generalist. There's still room for generalists, but I think it is going to be a smaller and less safe area of the industry. Instead, the survivors focused on specific areas and made themselves indispensable. And many also worked very hard to avoid the pitfalls of being commoditized in a profession that I found seemingly built to do just that. Lauren is one of those survivors, and she chalks it up to simple persistence, keeping going. I would add the willingness to take the financial angle to a glamour field like fashion. This is a massive global industry. After all, depending on the day, it is home to the world's richest person, Bernard Arnault. Hope you enjoyed this conversation. And again, send in your feedback. My email is bmorrissey at therebooting.com. Do you want to reflect on the podcast for a bit now that we're doing therapy? Okay. Sure. I mean, reflect. So, well, I just got to wake up here. How does it feel to have your first hit? Yeah, uppers, downers. You're like late Elvis. Well, it's great to have Neil on, if that's what you mean. That was a hit. I like the last podcast we did, but I was thinking about the podcast. Mm-hmm. I listened to it and it, whatever. Neil called it sort of, I don't know, media smartless or something, which is. I guess a good and a bad thing it means kind of that it's friends that sometimes get on each other's cases, which is what's happening right now. Well, the only difference is that I don't know who the guests are that you bring on. So that's a, that's a little bit of a... Yeah, no, we have a third guy who's a bit of a monkey. He's kind of unqualified. and mm-hmm. But I'm going to reflect on that for a second, Alex, because I mean, I think that can be valuable, admittedly. I think when you're way behind on the thread and you're like, what? Who was that? Sometimes it's frustrating. But, I'm but you keep mentioning guy. people's first names and acronyms. I mean, people should see this thread, which is like just a bunch of acronyms, acronyms and first names. It's like I've walked into one acronyms. of Brian's webinars. Thank you. 
So it must have been a delightful experience. So I stopped listening to Smartless when when it felt massively sycophantic. Like I couldn't stand how a bunch of celebrities were telling other celebrities how great they all were. Remember when we had lunch, blah, blah, blah. It was so great to see you at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills. So that's, I don't think that's w- what this is. And we don't need to talk a lot about what this is, but I did learn something. What? I was thinking about how to make the, the podcast better and what other podcasts I like. Ben Thompson's a weirdo, I've decided, but he delivers the goods in a tight little package and I listen to his podcast. And if I have huge amounts of time, Lix Friedman is nice to listen to because he lets his guests talk. He summarizes well. He asks good questions, but it's often too long, as we all know. Scott and Carius, uh, Carius. <laughs> Scott and Kara are, are really sanctimonious beyond measure. Right. And there's some good takes on it. And if we ever have a therapist on the show, I'm going to literally kill myself. I think that Puck, especially Puck, the the podcast Powers of Bee and Media Monday is really good. I like it a lot. And John has an encyclopedic media knowledge and Peter holds it together. Yeah, but he didn't know what Jonah, he didn't know what Jonah wrote on the sneaker. I texted him that it was sweatshop. Well, that's why he likes your podcast, because he gets that from you. Concierge service. I like this other podcast, Tetragrammaton. Rick Rubin's Zen Vibes, his insights, good questions. Doesn't have to be the whole show. Is that what you want to be? You want to be media's Rick Rubin? That's not what I was getting at. You know, I do also like produce shows like On the Media or Plain English or whatever with the PBS vibe, but... You know, if we had a producer, maybe it would be like that. But anyway, I think what makes it work first is we're centered on a community. And that community is digital media. And that's why the Neil one, I mean, that one way, like it or not, that's the community that I'm from. That's the community that kind of Brian's from. And you can then, you can go introduce and invite new communities. But the thing has to be first and foremost centered on a community. I think that's important for a podcast. Yeah. That you're serving a community. Yeah, that's why I said we should rename it This Week in SEO. I thought that was a good name. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that we can veer over into sort of Vision Pro world or gaming well, world. Well, do you know what I think it is? It's Product it, world. It's keeping that vertical focus, but having a broader view. Because a lot of times when you're in a vertical focus, there's a lot of like myopic thinking. And so... Yeah. The essential service that Alex provides is to remind everyone how small this industry is and that it needs to get its collective head out of its ass. Thanks for saying that, because that's what I was going to... I think it's important to have Alex on the show, even if he has uh, vibes of middle world sometimes. (laughs) Middle world? What does that mean? Hagger vibes. I'm just going to let Why do you put up with this shit? I don't put up with it. That's the thing. I have less tolerance. I know it comes from a place of love and and deep insecurity. So I just. (laughs) Okay. Well, I know know that and I still have less. (laughs) I think you got to do the work, Alex. You got to do the work for the podcast. I did the fucking work today. I was here. How can you show up a half hour late and say you got to do the work? I have three pages fucking of fucking research on the topics you mentioned. I listened to podcasts about our guest today to learn about her. I set up all the audio so we could listen to your stupid song. And you took a four-hour nap. Yeah, then you fell asleep in some sort of <laughs> hobbit pole somewhere. In your yurt. I got a note asking why you were doing the podcast outside because of your last outfit, because we did a little video. Hmm. Why was Troy outside? I also had a couple other items on my list. I know that you had brought up Vice, and I had some strong points of view on that, Brian. Okay. Is there a lesson to be learned from Vice's slow motion demise? Well, I don't know if you heard John talk about it, what he I described did. as like a unsentimental take. But my, my memories of Vice, many of them are very fond, actually. So where I started in journal, well, in media was across the street from where Vice started in Montreal. And they were a sort of quasi-government-funded hipster magazine that no one could really figure out because it wasn't clear where it was distributed or how they were getting money. Like It was always a hustle. And that's what was great about Vice. Because it represented a kind of, I don't know, modern rebellion of fuck-ups that were going to make something. If you just stop the schadenfreude for a sec, I think there's a lot of really great things inside of Vice. And, and it, I'll admit that I, I like Shane Smith a lot, and I think he's the king. I say that 
kind of provocatively no, or with humor, but and I like Shane. But like I have memories of like going to their new front. I can't remember where it was on the west side in Manhattan, and the Vice area was totally packed. Shane was laying on the sh- like on the stage, reliving his punk rock past, and everybody was there, and everybody was like, "Oh my God, I want to be part of this." And I remember Shane holding court in Cannes in his rented mansion. I can remember their articles that for sure tested the limits of good taste. I, I, I think of Vice, I think actually some really incredible documentary kind of storytelling that had way more ambition and delivered on it than any of the upstarts or newcomers in digital media. I remember like when they went to North Korea with Dennis Rodman and a couple of Harlem Globetrotters, and they did this documentary with playing basketball with Kim Jong-un. Like it, They did crazy stuff. And you know what? By the way, they did all the things that people in digital media kind of aspired to do, but they did it first, right? Like they told stories with video. I remember Hearst execs coming in and talking about how Vice was so incredible, that they gave cameras to the kids, that they broke conventions of media making, that they were like telling stories that other people weren't tell, telling. They, they mixed the kind of content that they that basically they wanted to cover. They covered sex, they covered politics, they covered drugs. They covered as well as news and entertainment and social issues. But they got the production deals before anyone else, which HBO, with I don't know who else they got deals with. They got their own television station. When everybody was trying to do branded content, Remember Vice bought, what was, they bought an agency, I think it was Carrot. called Carrot. Yeah. But then Vice was doing like... Well, they had I, Virtue too. Yeah, before. they were doing deals, and what a great name, Virtue. They, they were doing deals with the likes of Unilever and others for millions and millions of dollars. People were so envious yeah. about how big the deals they were doing. I can remember, let me just jump in for a second. I remember one time at a Digiday event, uh, this is like a wake, when this was early on, probably like 2012, 13, and I think it was whatever Mondelez was called before it was Mondelez Craft or something. They they were talking about some amazing campaign they did, and they were talk. They were like, "And thanks to our agencies, and Vice was the was was the right." Was the Didn't they do a ten million dollar deal with Intel? Do you remember they yeah. did that huge and motherboard? I think was oh, yeah. born of that. Oh my god, the Bank of America deal for they did the, f- the finance yeah. stuff. <laughs> right. I mean, look, he Shane. I'm again. This is a wake. He's clearly a master salesperson. A five hundred dollar bottle of of wine in in the south. Five hundred thousand dollar. Okay, whatever. I don't know. I don't run in these circles. It was enough to like sell the the Bank of America CMO on on a ten million dollar project that was viewed by I don't know fifteen thousand. But by the way, along the way, they won Emmys. They won Pul- They won a Pulitzer. Was it for and, the guy that went to the Westminster Dog Show on acid? Because that's the that's a classic, actually. That's a classic. It was in some ways like I look at it, and I'm like, well, it's a victimless crime. I mean, they took a lot of money from VCs and Rupert Murdoch and George Soros and, and various other people and incinerated it and made some interesting stuff. They did a lot of crass stuff. They created what seems like a, a horrific corporate culture. They did a ton of self-dealing. The only person who made money off of this seemingly was the executives for proving that they could incinerate a bunch of money. I don't know. That's totally punk rock, huh? You don't you don't you don't like that? I thought you'd like that. Well, I think you probably have a little bit more affinity for the boss class since we all have roles to play. There's no doubt I have affinity for the boss class. But yeah. listen, they took a magazine model, they built a community around it, they blew it into this multimedia brand, but it had no They bamboozled real... all of the millennials to work for dirt cheap because they got to be part of like keg parties and whatnot. That was a good Hustle. Yeah, it was like performance art, man. It was amazing. And but I don't think that the media was essential to anyone. And and it was sort of like MTV without a place on the dial. Right? So they got the TV station, but by the time they got the TV station, TV was over. They were programming to an elderly audience. It wasn't going to work. What are we it talking about was. here? Are they shutting down or what's happening? Well, well, they're going to just trim down to be a, like a production company. They had 18 million subscribers on YouTube. That's yeah, like that's a great. distribution platform. That's not a production company. Well, they'll keep that, I'm sure. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's like, so they're going to distribute on social channels and then they're going to distribute through 
other people that actually own distributions. So you know you what? There, there is close. I have a question Alex. for you guys. No questions. Sorry, no questions. I have a question for you guys. Do you think Where's you know that? how when when you look at Netflix or even publishers and video games? They often don't create the content. They're just distributing content other people make. Are we going to see more news companies shrink down and distribute it to the platforms and the AI companies and the streamers? Yeah. Isn't that I mean, a better that's a model? Path. The studio model is a path, for sure. Yeah. The SEO glue factory is a path. Why hasn't it taken over news more? But before we get into the, I want to fil- finish my eulogy, please. Oh, Jesus. Okay. 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 I you were finished. Did you dream it up during a nap? I you did. Seemed, you I did. It looks like he's Listen, I think he has a teleprompter. Alex, it was like a moment in music or a trend in club land. It's like a great underground club that was wonderful for a while. And everybody says, remember when? Remember that vibe? Remember that thing? It was like in the old days, Rolling Stone could be a generational music brand or sort of not a music brand, a generation media brand. And it lasted because it was different then. And they mixed all the things music, culture, news. But they had the delivery mechanism of a stable magazine business. And Vice never really had that stability. Nobody in digital media had it, right? So, and, and today, when everybody can create, I don't even know if, know if we need a brand like that. It's different, right? I think, but the, my problem with, I guess it's not a problem. I just feel like Vice is the avatar of this era of hacks. They used to do this thing called the traffic assignment scheme, which is nuts. Like basically they would roll up board panda and all these nonsense viral sites. And that's just like doing Adderall. There you are, Lauren. Hi. Look who's here. Lauren, what's up? They just finished actually ripping me a new one because Lauren and I fell asleep and I was late for the podcast. So what what happened that was bad? Well Alex came to the pod dressed as Peter Jackson and I got yelled at for wearing this vest. No, you showed up a half hour late. What does dress like Peter Jackson mean? It's just that I have a beard. I called him a hobbit, so he got offended. The issue really is that he fell asleep and came in 40 minutes late after lecturing everyone. So this is what we've been dealing with. You know what the most important thing for a good podcast is, Lauren? Oh, please tell me, Troy. Preparation. Preparation. You took a nap in the afternoon? Uh, yeah, I often do. See, that's what I said. I was tired. On a Tuesday. On a Tuesday. That makes you question your lifestyle choices, I think. I don't like naps. I'm not into that. <laughs> Good. This is the survival guide to journalism. You, you, we got no time for napping. First rule of survival, stop taking naps in the middle of the Alex, afternoon. I'd like you to meet Lauren. She's a cool egg. This is Alex, our old friend Alex. Hi, Lauren. It's nice to meet you, Alex. Am I the first woman you guys have had on? <laughs> Unfortunately, so. yes. I love that. Why do you, Why do you think we're so awkward? <laughs> I, I love to be the diversity card. That's not why we picked you. Okay, not at all. Should we get started? Yeah, let's go. Are you ready, Lauren? Let's get going. Yeah. So, Lauren, where where are you in Europe? I assume you're there for the shows. What What is it? Paris now? Yeah, I'm in Paris. I got here on Sunday night. So do you go to all of these fashion shows, these fashion weeks? There's there's a one every week, it seems like. I go to New York, Milan, and Paris, and occasionally go for men's or for couture or something like that. But twice a year I do. I didn't do Milan when I worked at Business of Fashion, but I'm doing it now. Do you ever do the fashion week in Regina, Saskatchewan? It's a really good one. <laughs> Oh, really? Is there one? That's interesting. St. Louis has Do they one. have the vest that you have on, Troy? <laughs> <laughs> Is that where you got it? It's got Chewbacca vibes. It can't be anywhere else, I would say. <laughs> it looks like a uniform. I, I had a question about those events. So we, we hear about them and they seem to do pretty big news cycles in the fashion mm-hmm. industry whenever there's one of these weeks. Is it also a consumer event? Or do they all follow a similar format? It's not consumer at the smaller secondary and tertiary Fashion Week, they'll sell tickets. Uh-huh. It's not technically a consumer event, but it's it used to be for the trade. Now it's for marketing. So it's a consumer event in, in that consumers can watch them online. And like some shows, Diesel and Milan, they always do kind of bring in students, stuff like that. But it's mostly the people who are there are editors, influencers. Sometimes they bring in like top consumers that are spending a hundred grand a year or more. But 
it's not like you buy can buy tickets. You get invited. And if you're a top consumer and you get to go, they fly you out there and they spend, they'll spend 20 grand, 25 grand to like put you up and all of that stuff or, or 10, 15 grand, that sort of thing, thinking that you'll spend at least a hundred. So it's worth it for them. It's like Vegas. Yeah. yeah. I had another question on that. I was leading to another question, which is, it seems that fashion has this pretty regular drumbeat of these events, which seem to be, I think, great when you're in media. And it feels like most industries would love to have the amount of regular events that happen in fashion, right? If, if you look at automotive, there, there are a handful. Tech, you know, Apple is one of them or CES or things like that. Do you think it's an advantage to have kind of this much content essentially that gets created every every few weeks? Sure. I mean, these brands are mass brands that sell billions upon billions of dollars worth of product, but the products cost a lot of money. So it's not like a car where you're, it's like 35 or 40 grand. Most of the products that people are buying are what, between $70 and $3,000 or something like that. So you have to sell more of them to get the volume and you just need the feed. Essentially, like a lot of high net worth consumers buy luxury goods as if they were buying Zara or something. So they need people right. to be buying a new luxury good every single week in order to drive the volume that they need. So they do need to have a lot of events to get people interested. It doesn't always work and you either have to have a ton of money or or a ton of creativity for it to to stick or to make a dent but i guess it works i don't think it's valuable as valuable to the trade as it used to be it's valuable to the media it's not valuable to buyers like it was once was that was my question which is it's a benefit if you're in the media to have these events to to cover that because I, I can see there are even spikes on tech sites just when apple has that bi yearly event and and I know people in the yeah. tech media wish there were just more events, you know, events like E3 shut down and there's not that many. So it does sound like it, it always makes for interesting reading, even if you're not a consumer. Lauren, Lauren, Sorry. Alex was yes. doing his best to connect the gaming world to fashion. I, I wasn't. That's mm-hmm. I honestly wasn't. But I want to back up to get thematic alignment, if you don't mind. Can I do that with you? Sure. So... Brian has been accused on the podcast of being overly negative and cynical and <laughs> had a very difficult time in in media. I think where mar- this period marks the end certainly of an era. Mm-hmm. We, we're, we're trying to put that era in perspective and also look for paths forward. Last week we had uh, our friend Neil on from Neil Vogel from Dadash Meredith who did, I thought, a really good job of presenting the bull case for his company and for any company like his in the industry. And then as I was thinking about that and, I don't know, talking to someone, I thought it would be good to have the perspective of people that are doing amazingly well in the industry that are survivors. And I thought of you, well, it wasn't long ago where I met you in LA. Did you and Dan meet at Forbes? Is that right? Yeah, we met. In two, at the end of 2005. Right. So you guys are like... Forbes.com, you know, not Forbes. It was Forbes.com. Forbes.com, yeah. It's where Spanfell It was eventually running, right? was one thing. It was span, Spanny, yeah. So you, you're yeah. doing the, the first person thing. This is, this is Dan Frommer, correct? Dan Frommer, yeah, I'm sorry. Your husband, Dan Frommer. I'm sure every person who listens to this podcast knows who Dan Fromer is, right? Actually, Dan Fromer is the first person that these guys have mentioned that I know well. So this is great. Yeah, you know Dan. So anyway, I thought of you guys as like the OG digital content kids. And you guys both grew up and moved to LA and got a house and had a baby and all that. And now you seem to be doing really well with this gig at Pac. And you're a survivor. And I thought maybe you could talk about, we could talk about that. Meanwhile, Brian yeah. has also been doing his his work no, inside of journalism schools, me, telling them. I mean, why Brian, you're not really out of the game. You have a newsletter. <laughs> I don't. I don't, I don't <laughs> consider that being out of the game. That's the. That's what he it said is. Out now. of the game. He's very much in the game. He's he was just game. selling webinars twenty minutes ago. He's he's the game. Someone asked me the other day. Oh, another newsletter writer. A much a, a much younger newsletter writer said, yeah. "It's so cool that you and your husband both have newsletters." And I was like, 
this is just yeah. journalism. We used to both blog. We used to both write page you sweatshop stories at Forbes.com. It's just you do what is. I have a newsletter too, Lauren. I know I, I read it, Troy. When, when he publishes it. I was listening to an interview with you just preparing for this, and I heard that you, you used to do HTML and, and build the websites and, and the content. Do you miss that having that we're going back to newsletters and kind of the web? It's not true. It's, Is that true, Lauren? It's entirely true. I, I went to like computer camps in high school where I learned how to hard code HTML. But yeah. it wasn't like it wasn't I don't know how to do Ruby on Rails or any of that stuff. I never uh, learned we're, anything we're, more than HTML. We're talking markup here, but, it, but yes, you, I, it might give you more of an affinity for I loved going into the code and cleaning it up and making sure everything looked nice and neat in WordPress. Do you miss that? Those days of the internet being no. exciting and craft-led where we used to make spend time <laughs> and attention formatting our pages? I do, that's why I'm asking. What? The web is dying. No, We're I, just sending newsletters out and I, tweeting. Yeah, I miss doing ahref equal. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a person who looks back at things. Yeah, but also all the publishing technology was like so handcrafted and duct taped together that editors had to go into the CMS and go into the actual code and just copy and paste a tremendous amount. It wasn't very rewarding, at least in my experience. Oh my god, Lauren, what do you do now? Uh, I'm a columnist or a author at Puck. I write a column a newsletter called Line Sheet about the fashion industry and a little bit about the beauty industry as well. And how do you describe Puck to like your... I do not, I do not use our CMS. How do you file a story? I file it in Google Docs. It's oh, wow. very luxurious. That's great. That's like a concierge it's, service. It's like really, that. really fancy. How do you describe Puck to your parents or to older people like me? I usually say... It's like a business magazine online and that I'm a columnist. I'm not like I write a newsletter, a private, or we call it private email. I don't, I don't say that. I say I'm a columnist. I write the fashion column. It's a business magazine online. It's like old school magazine writing, but done in a modern way, delivered in a modern way. How did you get to Puck? Where were you prior to Puck? I was the chief correspondent at Business of Fashion, the lead writer, for full-time seven years, and I was writing for them for about 10. And before that, I was a freelance writer for a long time. And before that, I worked at a blog called Fashionista, which is owned by Breaking Media. And then prior to that, I was a reporter at Forbes for four years. I also worked at Condé for a year in there, but we don't need to talk about that. How do you describe your beat? I cover the fashion industry. Just everything. I like to say from Target to Hermes, but I, I'm really interested in brands and why people shop and what makes them shop. I love fashion and interested in that industry and what drives it and why our entire GDP is based on consumption. So it's, it, it fuels the economy. It, it's a global cultural touch point it's it is so much and everybody has to wear clothes whether they want to or not so yeah it's interesting it's been a fun a fun ride i've been hearing from people that they feel like culture's accelerated and fashion's accelerated where you blink and you you watch a video on youtube and it looks like fashion's moved forward and it, it used to move slower is that something you're noticing does, does kind of the internet speed affect fashion speed? It's sped up the trend cycle, but I also think it's flattened the trend cycle. So you can go on Instagram, and I write about this a lot. Like I, on my Instagram account, for a, it's not happening as much anymore, and I was, I'm wondering why, but I was getting fed images of Carolyn Bissett Kennedy constantly. It's just I don't follow any of those accounts, but I, I'm sure I like would like them or look at them. And I just constantly was getting fed images of her. And if you were 18 years old and seeing that, those images, the, the way people dress hasn't really changed since like 1990 may, or maybe even 1985. It's fairly similar. The wardrobe, it's not like from the 70s to the 80s or the 80s to the 90s. It's 
pretty standard. And so you could see images of her and an 18 year old doesn't register that that's from the past. And so in some ways, yes, the trend cycle is really, really fast, but in other ways, there isn't really a trend cycle. People just shop vintage. They shop the, the era that they like or the style that they like. And so I think it's more about the flattening of, of history and, and not really understanding before, if you wanted to look at that stuff, you'd have to look in books and, and research or, or a magazine once a month might have an old picture in it. But now that stuff is just so accessible that it feels like it's in the present. And so the way people dress is way less connected to everybody's in skinny jeans or everybody's in bell bottoms or whatever, which is probably the easiest way to follow a trend over the last 40 years. Now people wear whatever jeans they want to wear and they're more following what they like aesthetically online. So it, yes, it has sped up, but it's also doesn't matter as much as it used to. Hey, Lauren, I think that you either maybe characterize it as making or have one of the plum jobs in the industry. Okay. You, you know, you remember sort of looking up to all those people that had those great jobs in the heydays of the magazine business. I say your job is great because I think that you have lots of influence and you have lots of freedom. And that's what makes the product kind of fun to read. And it's really cool to see that you occupy that role now. Do you sort of feel like, how did you get to do this? Why did you survive when it's so challenging for so many others right now? Yeah, I've been thinking about that for the last couple of days. One thing is this job didn't exist when I first started. There was not even people covering fashion. When I worked at Forbes, they barely wanted me to do it. They wanted me to write about other stuff and maybe once every six months, they were not interested in me writing about it full time and I had to really push for it. So that's one thing. There weren't people at general interest publications covering this stuff as much because the industry was far smaller and far less consolidated. As the industry consolidated and became, you know, Bernard knows the richest man in the world. I don't know if today, but the last six months he's been fighting with Elon Musk for that title. That didn't exist when I started 15, 20 years ago. So that's one thing that this job was made. And there are a lot more options at the tippy top now than there were maybe 15 years ago. When I started, it was Terry Agins at the Wall Street Journal was the only fashion reporter who covered the business at a big publication. So that's one thing. But I also think I have a combination of I have to work, which a lot of people are in publishing they have to work, but they don't really have to work. Like they have some sort of backup. I had no backup, so I have to work. And then I also really only like to do things the way I like to do them. I maybe take, took one job, the Condé Nast job, that wasn't right for me because I wanted more money and I wanted to like work there and see what it was like. But generally, I've been like very pushy about... I only want to do things that I want to do. And I got more confident as the years went on. And especially when I was freelancing and I realized, oh, I can, I made good money when I was a freelancer. I'm just like an insane hustler and also work a lot. I don't get writer's block. I can, I could write five news, newsletters a week. I mean, it would be crazy, but I could do it. Like it's, Brian, Brian I have enough in me. So yeah, I'd say that it's that combination of not having a backup and then also I want to do things the way I want to do them and just keep, that's like created this extreme drive that has benefited me. And I'm also a very lucky person. Like I've had a very, a very nice life. So that that's it too. But it is hard for me to empathize with people who haven't, been able to stick around or feel like they've gotten a short end of the stick in journalism. I know a lot of people have, but I do think a part of it is also just waiting it out and keeping going. And I just, I, when I moved to New York, I was like, I want to get a job as a staff writer. And if I don't, by the time I'm 27, I'll do something else. But I got one. And so I kept doing it. And I've been thinking about it for two days. And that's really all I can come up with is that I'm just 
I don't know if stubborn's the right word, but just very, I just push a lot. I push myself. I push everybody a lot. So I don't know if that's a lesson for how to fix the industry though. I don't know if it's a lesson, but I think there's lessons to be drawn from it. Right. And I think also you've outcompeted a lot of people in a very competitive space. If you think about particularly fashion journalism, and I know what you do is different. I think that's that's one of the staying powers and that's one of the secrets to survival is that you put yourself at the intersection of business and fashion. A lot of fashion coverage hadn't historically treated as a serious business that it is. It's a big industry, but there's a lot of people who are drawn to fashion, not for the business reasons. For sure. And and I think that was really lucky that I randomly got a job at Forbes.com. Yeah. It's not like I wanted to work there. Do, do you and Dan ever look at each other across the dinner table after he's made a beautiful dinner and say, we're both kind of moving down these very high risk career paths? Is this a terrible idea? How, no. Do you, no. No. I don't know. Mine is not risky. I'll be fine. We just don't, we're not, we don't think like that. Thinks some of the stuff Dan has done has been riskier than me. I mean, he's. I'm not going to start my own business. I have no interest in that. Did you consider that with all the Substack craze and stuff? Because no, I don't like know, the Substack thing. Why not? It's not for me. You're you're like insane. Well, I don't like the aesthetic of the Substack. Okay, but look, let's so say that's part part of it. I mean, Dan. Dan will code you like a beautiful newsletter. Yeah, he would, and he he coded his own beautiful newsletter, I but. Know. I don't know. I just am not interested. I like, I liked freelancing and I would do that again if I had to. And honestly, I was really, last year of BOF, I was like, I'm ready to go. It just felt like it was time. And I was thinking, oh, I'll just end up going freelance. But I like being a part of something bigger. And I also, with BOF and Puck, I really admired both of those places and wanted Troy, I mentioned Puck to you a year before I started. You asked me once, what newsletters do you like? And I was like, the only thing that I think is really interesting from a bigger thing is Puck. I like being part of something bigger. Also, I like having an editor. My editors are great. That that has been the best thing about working there is that I have these amazing editors who make me sound better and don't mess with the good stuff, which is which is really rare. So that's part of it. But I also just don't like the Substack aesthetic for me. And I could have done it on my own, but that's a, it's a pain in the butt. I mean, it's, that's having your own business and managing. If you want to have advertising, Dan has advertising. He has partners. He does sponsored content. He consults. He has all these different things he does. And it's great for him. It's the best job he's ever had, but I don't want to deal with that stuff myself. Yeah, I heard, I heard you talk about the fact that you wanted to focus on being a writer, and which is also why you never went into things like management, which is what a career path that a lot of media companies push writers into. I totally get that. I also get why you think that uh, Substack is not aesthetically pre- pleasing. Wait, can I just jump in? Is that any different with designers? Don't get don't designers get pushed into being design directors and then creative directors? Yeah, and pretty I, soon they're having meetings. Not, I mean, which is why that resonated with me because it's the same thing. We we keep pushing anyone that has a passion and experience for something into becoming a manager, and so you kind of create an environment that just like stacked with managers and with people that have a ton of experience hating their jobs. It happens in, and definitely happens in design. And sometimes I think you need to create environments where people can just do the job, which is why I find Puck fascinating, right? doesn't seem to have support structure, not a lot of layering, and then people who are at the top of their game just making stuff. And I like that, I like that model a lot. Yeah, it's really great. And I was pushed into management several times. <laughs> but you can't avoid it altogether, even at BOF where... I moved into management for like, I think, a month and I told everyone I can't do this. And then I ended up staying in it for a little bit longer, but I, I helped the other reporters a lot. And that's the one thing is you get more senior. You do have to just like help the other people, even if you are not managing them day to day. But yeah, I mean, when I took that job at Condé Nast, that was a management job. And I thought, you know, this is what I have to do to make 
decent money and stay in this industry. And I just realized very quickly that it wasn't right for me. And I like, I like being alone a lot. I like writing or reporting. And that's the the biggest thing. And I just can't like the whole thing you have to do as a manager where people come to you and complain all the time about the other people they work with. I can't handle that because <laughs> yeah. it's just not, I think. This flies in the face a little bit to what you've been pitching, Brian, which is... What, middle management? No, well, writers have to become more than writers. They have to become, you know, run their own business, sell, no, sell advertising and webinars and just no, there's different paths. Different I mean, I remember actually when I started doing the rebooting, I talked with Dan and I remember him telling me, he's like, it's not for everyone. You got to be, you got to be willing to do, do it all. It's just a different path and there's different trade-offs. But I think what's interesting about this profession, but beyond that is the survival path is actually better to be as close as you can to the making of whatever the product is or the selling of the product, not where you've been pushed, which is the hilarious part of capitalism, is they push you in a direction and then they pull the rug out from under you. Look at all the middle managers getting uh, left by the wayside at all of these companies. They're the first yeah. to go. Yeah. yeah, I would agree with that. I think that if you know how to do something, then you are always able to make money. Like I can always make money writing an article for someone. I mean, I know you, you all probably think it's all going to go to AI or whatever, but like I can always make money writing something. I, I don't, don't think that's what we all said. I, I hope maybe Ale- Alex said yeah. that. Hey, 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 I never said that. I think that there's a there's like a lot of the stuff in the middle or the low end specifically that gets replaced. But If he had it his way, Lauren, your newsletter would be three bullets. Bullshit. But, yeah. but listen... I'm wondering, Lauren, if you got the call from, say, a place you admire, and let's say that it was kind of traditional media, let's say Anna called you, Anna Wintour called you and said, I want you to be the U.S. Vogue editor. I would Um, never work there. You wouldn't do it? No, I'm not interested. I was never interested in working at Vogue. I'm very interested in Anna. Well, let's say maybe maybe it was Vanity Fair instead. Right now, would I do that? Never. <laughs> would I have done that 10 years ago? May- yeah, of course, I would have been interested in it. But now there's just so much crap at those places. It's so frustrating. It's interesting. I've had the two interview, like the two interview processes I went through at BOF before this that were like things that I would have considered were at two newspapers you can guess which ones and one of them i was the regina leader post and (laughs) (laughs) no wall street journal and something else yes new york exactly the one of them i didn't want the job at all but i wanted to meet the editor because i thought he was interesting and i was like i don't want this job but i just wanted to meet you and the the amount of money that this big job at this paper was was less than I was making at BOF, like way less than I was making at BOF. And I was like, I'm already make this. And, and it wasn't, that was not interesting. And then the other job that I was more interested in, it just was so small compared to what I was doing at BOF. And now that's like multiplied times 500. There's just, I'm interested in being able to do good work and I don't really care about where it is as long as I like the place that it, it is. And, you know, with, with both of these places that I've spent the last 10 years were things that I really admired and thought these people are doing something that I would want to be a part of. And that's, I think, so rare in media that, that you feel that way. I feel like I'd be, I think what Amanda Mall does at the Atlantic is really great. I'm a huge fan of hers. And if a place like the Atlantic had called me, I probably would have really considered it. But there are very few places like that at this point for me. Hey, Lauren, in in the the type of content that you create for Puck and in your own kind of inimitable kind of column, as I see him, his kind of style, you can be hard on people sometimes. And I don't think you you do it maliciously. I just think that you, you like write about the stuff that you see in front of you and you're not afraid to do that. Do, Do you get a lot of, the industry can be full of, of a, of like a massive, just like sycophantic vibe. Do you get a hard time from from folks that think that you're 
that maybe you got sharp elbows sometimes in, in your puck work? Sometimes. I think that generally, even at BOF and Fashionista and all these other places, I'm much blunter and more straightforward than ever, but I was always like that. So I think most people weren't shocked. I think they were delighted by my voice coming out, essentially. But I don't think many people were shocked by it. There are some that bristle at it. And you know, these luxury brands are really used to, I got a call this morning that I wrote a little thing. One of the big brands is having a menswear show at the end of Women's Fashion Week. And I wrote a short thing about it, very brief, because everyone was talking about it at the shows. Like, why are they doing this? And I got a call from them this morning. They were like, could you please take this down? And I was like, why is there some, but but I would never take anything down, Troy. I've never taken anything down. And, no, and I'm not that, saying you would. I'm, su- thing I'm just not surprised. That yeah. I'm not surprised they a- they asked. No, I've had people call me and say, you know, Lauren was really hard on me, and I'm like, Lauren, Lauren just writes what she sees, and I think that you're being too sensitive. Now I want to know who said that to you. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. I think I can be, but I also think what helps. Oh, I think I know who said that to you. I could guess, but I think it does help when the person that I'm writing about is willing to pick up the phone because not everyone is, and that makes it harder for, for me and for them. But I just try to be really straightforward, and this is a fun job where I do get to needle people a little bit, and I w- wasn't doing that directly previously, but it's hard. I, I listened to a couple of your episodes this week and listen to the the cancel episode. And I do agree that I think a lot of journalists are sociopaths and I'm not one. Thank you. See? It's Boom. hard for me. I do think that, but I'm not one. Even the person this morning, I wanted to make them feel better. We worked it out. I was like, look, I'm never going to take anything down. There's nothing incorrect. I'm sorry that you're stressed out because you didn't want anyone to know this and I didn't realize that, but like, it's not going to change and we had the phone call and it was totally fine. But yeah, I want people to like me. I don't want people to feel bad. I had to go to a Condé Nast thing. I write about Condé Nast a lot. Last night I had to see all these people and talk to them and I write stuff that they don't like and that's what it is. But I'm not like out to get any. I had a call with someone. I wonder if this is the person that called you, Troy, last week who was like, why would you do this to me on whatever? And I was like, there's literally no, I'm not doing anything to you. I'm all I'm doing is, is my job. And, but from there, yeah, they, they have different perspectives and you got to put yourself in their shoes. But I have, I have a question sure. with adapting to the puck style. You mentioned Condé Nast and, and Roger Lynch is clearly, I call it the main character. I feel like puck has main characters. I've talked to. Yeah. I mean, this. he, he would, I would call a secondary character in mine. But okay, so who are your dem? He, he like, has become, he's become more of a main character. I'd say minor. Okay, so he's like a two sort of roller skates onto the scene every yeah. now and again. Yes. But okay, yeah. Bernard Arnault. But there is main characters. Give me, give me your main characters. Sure. Minor Bernard Arnault, Francois Henri Pinot. I mean, they're my two main guys. Alessandra McKaylee. I, I write about, about them about so guy. much. Alessandra McKaylee. All the C- CEOs of. Demna, obviously, I just write so much that it's hard for me. Anna Wintour is definitely oh, one. Yeah. Chanel, the brand, is one. There's not really a lot. The the, the executives there don't really have a, a ton of main character energy, but Chanel is, <laughs> is one. I think a lot for me, it's a lot of brands. One of the things when I do my mention in this issue, I don't always just put people, I put brands too. And now I don't know if anyone had done that before, because for me, it's, it's also about the brands, Tori Birch and Pierre Roussel, Sydney Toledano, like a lot of the LVMH and caring executives and yeah. And then media wise, I'd say Roger and Anna are probably the ones that I, I just no offense, Troy, but Condé is way more, more interesting than Hearst. Hearst can be kind of boring. So. 
it, it has become. I'm not, I'm not offended. So uh, Lauren, I, I have one more question yeah. on this. How was it adapting your style to the puck style? Because I think I often hear from other journalists. I mean, you'd have to ask John a bit. Well, what I wonder about that is because I feel like you have a lot of freedom there that you probably wouldn't have at a lot of other places. And I think dif- different people and puck take it in different directions, but you can like, I don't want to say, remember when Mike Arrington was trying to make process journalism thing, but you're like, I'm hearing this thing. I haven't figured out this thing. And I, I think that's a very modern way of, of doing yeah. journalism because too often journalism has painted itself into a corner by painting things as black and white when it's at best, it's come on, you're, you're trying to get an approximation of the truth at a certain period of time. It's, it's literally a first draft of history. So first drafts are messy, but yeah. Talk to us about that and, and how you approach, how you write the column, because I think it's different than, than how you used to write, but maybe not. Yeah, I mean, it's actually not that different from Fashionista. So what has happened is I've taken, and I that was also ten over 10 years ago that I worked there, I guess, but and my voice has gotten a lot stronger and was unused for many years because BOF is so standardized in the way everything is written. So I had a lot of pent up energy with that. I think I can't remember, but it seemed like I got it in a week. I, you have to remember I was reading them. I was reading maths in particular from basically day one because Teddy, one of the other writers worked for Dan. So we were on Teddy's list and someone had sent me maths. I think maths even Started before. Just to be clear for the audience, you're talking Matt Baloney. Matt Baloney, yes. Baloney, yes. Who would pronounce their name that way? (laughs) I honestly made that mistake. By the way, I didn't. I didn't mean. Hi, I'm Mr. Baloney. Like, no. There's a guy who works at LVMH who has the same last name, and his name is Tony. And I always say Tony Baloney. He's he's European. (laughs) It probably is Tony Baloney. He's a very nice guy. But yeah, it was like, so I was reading Matt from, I think someone sent it to me even before Puck launched, I think. I don't remember, but I was on maternity leave and I was reading it and I was like, this is so good. I kept forwarding it to the BOF people being like, when I come back, I should do something like this, but in in a more formal style. I think that that helped. I was like, I should work there. This is the perfect job for me. I knew immediately and I messaged Teddy, I'd say a year into them doing it, being like, if you all ever do fashion or retail, I just want to be in the conversation. I would be so gutted if I wasn't like interviewed for this job. I just think I'm the right person for it. So when I started, I'd say the hardest part was previous to, to the launch, John asked me to do a couple like why essentially like why should puck be covering fashion things and that was hard for me because i hadn't used my voice in a long time and also i'm so used to really relying on reporting but then i don't know it just clicked i don't remember when it just came natural to me matt has developed in a really short period i mean he had influence before but i think that the whole puck thing has been really incredible for his kind of position in the community. Do you find that after this short period that you have the kind of access and influence that you would have expected? Are you getting good seats at the shows? Only you would ask that, Troy. Yes. I mean, the shows that I'm invited to, I'm getting good seats and good access and getting invited to do previews with the designers and all of that stuff, getting invited backstage, getting introduced to the CEOs if I don't know them, that kind of thing. I mean, that hasn't really changed that much from BOF. I'd say it's a bit better in Europe because at BOF, I was like number four in Europe. Whereas in America, I was always like number one girl in in America. So treated very well by the brands and everything. In Europe, the Italians love it. They're all like, we love Puck, we love Puck. And they're all very excited and they are into it. French, half and half. There are some brands that are really into it and excited about it and other people who are freaked out by it for sure. I mean, I would say not that many, but it will take a couple more seasons for 
for all the Paris brands to come around. But it's fine. I've always had this. It's never been easy for me. I'm sorry to interrupt. I have a, I had a hard stop at right now, so I'm going to have to hop off. But it was a pleasure. You guys keep recording this. Very sorry to Nice to meet you. Thank you, Alex. Sorry Thank you. for sleeping. That's okay, Troy. You look great. One final thing, just to bring it back to the, the survival thing. I, I spoke to a group at Columbia Journalism School about whether they should continue down this path of this profession. What, what do you tell aspiring journalists? Do you tell them, like, go into real estate? Or do you say, yeah, there's a path here. And, and if so, what do you advise them? If they want to make a career out of this and they don't have a trust fund. I do think the just sticking it out is, I don't know, it's really hard to, I would never discourage someone from going into journalism, but I just don't think most people, what I think about is like in college, hilariously, my degree is in writing literature and publishing, which is the fakest degree ever. But I was in a lot of like nonfiction writing classes and there were all these really ambitious kids and I remember thinking, if there, I'm at this little dinky college in Boston, if there are all these people here who want to be magazine writers or whatever, how am I going to make it if, if in this one college there are all these people? None of those people did it. And then when I went to Forbes, I was like, all these people have journalism degrees and they have all this other stuff that I don't have. And none of them made it or like half of them work in PR or whatever, you know, I think the answer is just, you have to stick it out and, and you have to also, I bring up this woman, Jean Godfrey June a lot, who was the, when I worked at Lucky Magazine, she was the beauty editor. She's really resilient. She's worked at a million different kinds of magazines. She could have, when I worked there, it was like when peak HuffPo and I was like, she could have been the editor of HuffPo. She was great at heads and decks. She understood the internet and she's, she still works. She's the beauty director in Goop. Like she's, she's a survivor and she could have done any of those things. And I think the biggest thing is you have to be comfortable with change and be willing to apply whatever you like doing to that change. So I'm not going to start doing TikTok reels or whatever, but I like doing podcasts. So you have to accept that things are going to change and try to change with it the best you can. But I don't know. It's it's really hard for me. I've just never been one of those people. I don't think about like the sorry state of media. Again, I've been really lucky, but I did work. I mean, Forbes.com was kind of a crappy place. I loved it, but it was not, it wasn't like it was, we had those slideshows with the donut the donut advertising created by Mike Smith. You know, it's Oh not, my God. He's going to be literally yeah. over the moon that he got a mention. I love you, Mike. I love you. Mike does he still Smith. work at Hearst? He does, yeah. yeah. He's the father of ad tech. He's, he wrote the book. That's <laughs> exactly. interesting. Mike, call me. I forgot that he still worked there. Oh my God. There, there was some guy who worked there who said they invented the slide. There, everyone was trying to say they invented the slideshow when I worked there. You know who I talked to today? I talk, Mike Perlis. Who did you, Do you talk remember to? him? Of course. I, yes, I know his son, Steve Perlis, who was an intern at Forbes when I worked there. Forbes at that era pioneered the welcome message with the, that quote from yeah, Steve quote Forbes, of quote of the day, wisdom yeah, of the, the day. Yeah, the quote of the day. Big yeah. programmatic banner ad courtesy It's also an, an ad product. In a, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it was kind of like a crazy place to work, but I I loved it. I had a great time. It was super fun. And, and I mean, I obviously I met my husband there, but I met a lot of good friends. And, and now I have the job where I get to have fun all the time and it's awesome and I'm really lucky, but every job was a little bit better. And I don't know, I just never... All I can say is I think you just have to have the like grit and resilience to stick it out. And most people don't. You both remember, do. But I remember when we had that conversation don't. that day, Lauren, and I was telling you how much I love that you were following the money in your posts and talking about mm -hmm. essentially the flow of capital behind the whole fashion machine and media machine. Yeah. And I really like that about how you're kind of deconstructing the industry now and and really trying to kind of appreciate the money side of it because I think it makes the picture more complete. It's killer what you're doing. 
Thank you. I, I learned that at Forbes. Forbes was, when I worked there, they would talk about it being, we're the theater critics of business. And you weren't allowed to quote analysts. And it, it was freeing because you had to talk to them, but like you had to have an opinion about what was going on. And I think I, I was lucky that I was there pre-2010 when they still had a sort of way of doing things. And it, I think it really benefited me. And it was also good for what I did next, which was going into blogging, where you're not doing pretty much any reporting, you're just doing takes. And Brian, the thing you were saying about the sort of iterative, you talk about what you know and what you don't know, it, it just feels more honest to me to mm -hmm. say it in that way than to act like I have all the answers or what have you. Yeah, and I think that's obviously the puck style. And it's very like a note, a reporter's notebook. And I l like that. And it's right for me. But, you know, it's not obviously not right for everybody. Fair enough. I think we should leave it there. I love okay. it. You could stay on if you want for good product. I'm going to do a little good product spiel. I would like to weigh in on the good product. Am I Troy usually, he, he well, good, because we need a counterbalance, because Troy does the sort of middle-aged, like, rich guy, good product. Go on, Troy, put that intro. Honestly, my tastes align with that, unfortunately, so I might like what he <laughs> What do we says? have? Or he does things like cherries or something he sees around his yurt. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> what an auspicious setup. Thank you, Brian. Um, it's good to be your friend. I'll set it up a little bit. I didn't really want to talk about the kind of male control impulse manifested in high-end espresso machines <laughs> or audiophile-level stereo equipment, although those, those are things that I like. And, and I guess that you like to optimize or control something. You get into the little details and... You can talk about like nerd out on bean roasting and how you weigh them or spritz them with water to make it complete or just the heavy metal of the machine. And it gives you t something to talk to your idiot friends about, especially if they don't like sports or something else. But this week's good product is not a thing. It's song. And my son was like, oh my God, you got to listen to this amazing song. So I listened to it yesterday. Then I listened to it 10 more times because I couldn't believe how much I love the song. It's an English dude. His name is Baby Dave. I don't think he's super popular. And the song is called Dank Mocha. Sorry, Lauren, I don't think I shared it. Maybe I shared it in the thread. Oh, you did share it. I just ignored it because I was like, what is this? Mark. And I, I don't think I need to engage with it. Well, I think you do need to engage with it. because, And I need you to play it for Dan if you have a minute when you get home. Dank Mocha. It's it's so good. Like I'm off my rocker on this song. That's actually a line. Monday morning and I'm lacking motivation, talking shit, feeling weary. So I turn the conversation towards Eric's brand new coffee machine. He said it was a moving in present from his mom and his stepdad. Then he made the dankest mocha that I've ever fucking had. Oh, the ratios were perfect. And that's my good product of the week, Brian. I know you don't like it when I do fruit or I don't really do services. I haven't done a lot of services. I'm sorry, Baby Dave has 106 subscribers. No, this this can't be. This can't be right. This must be. Find right. another. It may, may not be significant, but the song is, okay. is significant. No, I don't mean to say just because he's not popular, he's not good. I try not to bring like just basic kind of cultural items to the good product corner like that, like a song or a movie, but this week I'm making an exception. Okay. I've never listened to Dank Mocha, but I will after this. Hopefully you will too, Lauren. I'm a little disappointed it wasn't a product though, Troy. I know, I know. But it's okay. I'm wearing this, I don't know if I'm wearing, they're making fun of me that I look like Han Solo or something. I'm wearing this kind of molted wool vest from Folk. You know that British brand Folk? Yeah, I, I do. Like, they have a really nice store in London. Bloomsbury. Yeah. So that's kind of a good it product. It kind of looks like the lining of a barber jacket. Yeah. Just one last thing, Lauren. Uh, you know what? You I, I texted you 
You said you would come on. You're amazing. Thank you for doing that. You didn't have to, and it was so cool for you to join us. I appreciate it very much. And of course, both Dan and John say hi. Hi, John Kelly. Do you told John that you were coming on? That's nice. Yes, of course. You know what? John did the nicest thing, and he said that he liked our podcast on his podcast. And I thought that was really nice. Awesome, Lauren. Thank you thank so you. much. Appreciate Thanks, it. guys. Bye. Bye, Brian. I hope Bye. I get to meet you in person soon. Bye, Troy. Thank you, guys. See Bye. you, Lauren. Thank you all for listening. And if you like this podcast, I hope you do. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast that takes ratings and reviews. Always like to get those. And if you have feedback, do send me a note. My email is bmarcy at therebooting.com. Be back next week. That was a good conversation. It was a little in the weeds of the journalism world. No, really good, really good. And I feel like Alex came out trying to make sure that he had something substantive to ask. And I appreciated that. He did his homework and got pissed at me about it. 